You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. You made a mistake, my friend. No astronaut would enter the capsule carrying his air conditioner. Remove his helmet. James Bond, allow me to introduce myself. I am Ernst Stavro Blofeld. They told me you were assassinated in Hong Kong. Yes, this is my second life. You only live twice, Mr. Bond. Welcome, everyone, to the 602 Club, Trek FM's General Geek Show. I'm so excited to be here. Ruby up serving up a nice sake at just the right temperature this evening, which is just fantastic. We're coming to you live from, well, a, a very nice bar in Japan, all to celebrate what we're going to be talking about tonight. You Only Live Twice, which one of the very few James Bond movies to only take place in pretty much one location. And I have with me the man, the myth, the legend himself, John Champion. Matthew, thank you for that. Twice is the only way to live. That is true. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to live, twice is not bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm only, I'm, I'm so glad that Ruby is not as pedantic as James Bond to not insist on serving me sake at 98.4 degrees. Yeah, yeah. She Luckily, she's, she's not as much a stickler for the rules. She's mm-hmm. more about making sure that the customer is happy. Mm-hmm. I could get uh, it so. cold if I wanted to, and some days when it's hot out, I want cold sake. I understand, um, I, I, and I'm sure that our good friend Chris Jones would agree with you. Uh, living in Japan, I know there are plenty of days where it's warm over there, and I'm pretty sure it's it's uh, an, a nice cold beer would actually be better than a warm right. sake. Indeed. So, <laughs> indeed. Oh gosh, well I'm so excited to to be here to talk about uh, another James Bond film with you. We have this one and one more for everybody this year, uh, and then we'll continue on next year. But before we dive in, of course, just remind everybody you can find uh, the 602 Club and all the Trek FM shows at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. We're a feature provider over there. While you're there, hit us up with a star rating and review. It really does help with the show. Really appreciate all the people who've done that so far. It means a lot to us. And gosh, um, we just had the second year anniversary of the 602 Club. So thank you so much, listeners, because without you, this show would not have been the success that it's been. And uh, you make it worth it every single week. So I just want to say a special thank you to all of you who listen each and every week. It means a lot to me. You can find us on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook, facebook.com slash TrekFM. You can interact with John and I at the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group on Facebook. To get there, type Babel under the search field there on Facebook. Or if you're on our website at trek.fm, you can click discussion on any of the menu bars, and that'll bring you there as well. And you can write us an email. Go to trek.fm slash contact choose a show choose the 602 club and that'll come straight to me and of course you can leave us a voicemail love getting those speakpipe.com slash trek fm 
Now, John, when we last left James Bond, uh, yes. he he had just had an amazing adventure, and you know, it, it, we talked through that one with Thunderball, and and there were some things that we liked and some things that we didn't, and. This one was really interesting because there's a lot of things that happened before the film, uh, before they even got to filming You Only Live Twice. In fact, that was not even their first goal. Their right. goal was actually to yeah. film on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I kind of don't blame them for, well, wanting to shoot OHMSS. And I don't blame them for switching over to You Only Live Twice, <laughs> to be quite honest. You know, it, it's as interesting to follow the behind the scenes on the James Bond movies as it is to follow the movies themselves. Uh, to pull off the movies on the epic scale that they do, you're mobilizing an army to make a movie. And um, as you talked about last, week, uh, last time on the show, the, the rights that were involved with making Thunderball and that turning out the way that it did, that was a whole other piece of drama going on in the background. Yes. <laughs> you know? But I, I think that in some ways they made the right movie at the right time. It's very hard now in retrospect, and, and usually hindsight is twenty twenty. it's very hard now in retrospect to think about this movie coming out in 1968. And it's very hard for me to think about Our Majesty's Secret Service coming out after the trajectory of Dr. No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, and Thunderball. We've talked before about how those first few movies, and in particular from Russia with Love in Goldfinger and Thunderball, they really feel like they're, they're building on each other. They are successive links in the chain. And they're finding their way with each story. And they're, they're figuring out ways, for better or for worse, to kind of outdo themselves with each movie. You Only Live Twice is firmly in that mold of what worked before, what can we do to wow the audience? We're, we're very self-aware of the pop culture surrounding what we're doing here. How do we make it bigger and better? On Her Majesty's Secret Service isn't that movie. It has a very different feel to it, at least the way that it was produced. And honestly, I don't know if I could picture Sean Connery in OHMSS. And I don't know if I could picture another actor in You Only Live Twice, whether it would be George Lazenby or if had this gotten pushed off again, a guy like Roger Moore. You know, that's a really interesting question because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot and realizing and, and, you know, researching, watching the extras seeing that their their thought was that they wanted on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And, and the real reason was is because they would have been required to find some high and snowy locations, and that just wasn't going to happen at the time of year. Uh, they weren't going to get what they needed uh, when they were trying to make this. And so it was easy for them to say, well, you know, we'll just do You Only Live Twice. And I think you're right because when I think of the movie that we do get in OHMSS, there is a vitality to it that's not here in mm -hmm. Sean. Uh, this one, I think, fits Sean where he is, the age that he is, uh, you know, where he is in the character. I think uh, this one almost just fits him like a glove. Mm -hmm. it's, it's everything that he's already done, whereas I think... On Her Majesty's Secret Service is really going to 
stretch the character of James Bond. And I it almost just doesn't feel like that's what Connery would want to do because the reason he's leaving is because he's tired. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it last time when we were talking about uh, Thunderball. You you really responded to him looking older and and it, it feeling like it's kind of a slog to get through that movie. And now looking back at those first four in retrospect, I, I kind of see the same thing. It's not the same Sean Connery from 1962, even though we're talking about a relatively short period of time to go from, well, you know, given 1961 when he gets cast to 1966 shooting You Only Live Twice and then it came out in 67 um, in the U.S. anyway. That's not a huge chunk of time, but you can tell that it has aged Connery a bit. Yes, yes. You know? and, and I think with the storyline of OHMSS, it would be a little bit harder to believe that the guy who has gone from fantastical film to fantastical film with the, the Connery movies would then be back in a story that in ways is more intimate and is a little more personal for Bond. In some ways, too, uh, you know, I was thinking about this film, and it, it was funny. Uh, this will give you behind the scenes of just kind of how my mind works. Uh, a lot of times when I'm thinking about the show and things we're going to talk about, I will kind of lay there in bed at night and play through things in my head. And I was actually thinking about this last night. The idea that on Her Majesty's Secret Service, the plot seems, uh, when you think about it, it, it seems a little bit fantastical. But actually, it's it's really not. It's pretty small, and it's very realistic. This kind of idea of germ warfare, that kind of thing, people you wouldn't expect delivering all of it, all that kind of stuff. And it fits very much within the psychedelic 60s, too, with, with what they're doing and all that. And we'll talk about that next time. But... Yep. This one is so much rooted in everything, like you were saying, that we've already gotten with Bond. Uh, and like you said, that kind of everything's just getting bigger and more verbose, uh, even Connery. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So I, because I also noticed in this film, Sean's not in shape anymore. Yeah. Uh, he, he is, he's just not. Um, he, he reminds me of... Um, the times that you can tell that Shatner hasn't been working out as much in the original series. Uh, that's kind of what we're starting to get. And it, it's nothing against Sean. That's mm -hmm. just what happens as we all get older. I know I've got about 15, 20 pounds more on me than I did when I was like 10 years younger. Yeah. Uh, just because of the, you know, bodies changed, whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, it, yeah, I think that... The writers and creators here, I think um, Broccoli and Saltzman really make the right choice to go with You Only Live Twice because I really do think that it fits the character that they're going to have, that they already have. And it's a great way. I mean, if this is going to be Sean's last film, this is a big, bold, brassy film for him to go out on. Yep. Yeah. It, it fits the bond that they have. Um, maybe OHSS would have worked with Connery a few years before if they had decided yeah. to go that direction, which also would have looked and felt very different had it been made in 1964. Now, all that said, speculating about whether or not OHMSS would have worked with another actor, and I'm sure we'll come back to it when we talk about that movie. You know, I, I think that 
Honor Majesty's Secret Service needed a better actor, probably in the central role, uh, though Lazenby has his strengths, brings me back to the question of whether or not You Only Live Twice would have worked with another actor. And then I think about the similarities of this with uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, <laughs> because there are many. And we'll probably revisit the plot line of You Only Live Twice when we get to The Spy Who Loved Me. Well, uh, yeah, that, and I'm thinking too, you know, and, and it's um, Roald Dahl who wrote this pretty much just stole the basic plot, he said, from Dr. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. So, uh, and, and they put the name, you only live twice on it, uh, but it's pretty much the same thing, just yeah. hyped up. It's, it's basically Dr. No on steroids mm -hmm. <laughs> with yeah. a budget of like five times as much. So, right. <laughs> which much. I think leads us to a very interesting thing about, you know, what's next, which once they figured out it was, you only live twice. They have a huge bombshell that Sean drops on them saying, this is going to be my last movie. I, I'm I'm done. And yeah. I wanted to ask you right up front, because I think it will color everything else. Do you feel like Connery performs more as he does in the first three? Or does this feel like an extension of the tiredness that we kind of both picked up on in mm. Thunderball? Do you feel like this was a, like he gave a performance that made you think, okay, Connery went out on top. You know, mm -hmm. we're 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 discounting the fact. Obviously, we know he comes back for one more film after yeah. this, and we'll talk about that when we get there right. uh, next year. Thank God we have we have a lot of time to prepare <laughs> for that. Uh, but does this one feel like he gave you the performance that, as a fan, especially at the time? you would have been happy with. Well, I think it's all right. But I, I think the problem is maybe a little bit of fatigue has set in, not necessarily for Connery, but for the audience. We we know what we're getting. And again, the producers have got to be very self-aware of making movies that top the other movies. They, they know that they're not just in charge of a movie, they're in charge of a franchise. They're in charge of a pop culture phenomenon. So... I, I sort of get the impression that Connery is having fun with this movie. This is a fast-paced movie. There are exotic locations, even though there's one real location, which we'll talk about. But um, I, I get the feeling that there is a bit of levity and tongue-in-cheek with this that's not necessarily there with Thunderball. But I think, as you and I talked about, the problem with Thunderball is that Thunderball is kind of a mess in some ways. It's not specific to Connery. It's not specific to anybody in the movie. It's sort of just a big bloated movie with many, many high points in it. There are many great things about Thunderball, but it's sort of long <laughs> and yes, you kind yes. of get lost in all the underwater photography. So there are things working against it anyway, stylistically. This, because you only live twice, feels different. And with every movie, they're stepping toward that bigger, better, bolder, a little more modern. You know, you've got all this kind of great gadgetry in downtown Tokyo, which even 45, 50 years ago still looks futuristic. <laughs> so, so there's a lot working in their favor with this movie. It's it's funny because I watched the film specifically with this in mind to kind of try and answer this question. And I think you're right. I feel like Connery is having fun. 
and I, I feel like he's giving a, a decent performance. I don't think it's his best, but I do feel like that the film itself and it 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 going faster and all of that stuff, I think that it is working, and I really like it. I feel like that it fits, and I feel like that for the most part, you know, for the audience, if this was Connery's last film and he never came back, I feel like he did the part justice. I think that it's it's just one of those things where I can't imagine being the the film producers in this place to realize that this is your star's last movie. And I think, too, if he didn't feel like that beforehand, I think that he probably would have felt like that during this filming because they had many a times it was over a hundred degrees when they were filming in Japan. <laughs> and from the moment that he got there and from the moment the production started there, they were hounded by the press and the fans. It was brutal for them. And I, I think, you know, there's a great interview on the extras with uh, Sean's ex-wife mm. talking about how he couldn't go anywhere without people knowing him and basically just kind of being all over him. And so I, I really do. I think that it, it makes sense when we talk about the fatigue factor, when we talk about uh, his life in general, what had become. And, you know, I guess if, for, if you're Sean, at this point you've probably made a lot of money and you're ready to move on to something else. And it, it makes sense to say, you know what? This James Bond thing's been fun, but it, it's time for me to move on. And honestly, I think just by the look of Sean, I think yeah. he made a wise choice at this moment in his life, again, discounting that he'll come back, to to not basically end up doing what Roger Moore did, which was to way overstay your welcome. Yeah, well, and, and you know what? This is at a time when, with very rare exceptions, you weren't in the business of franchise building. Right. It's not like today where we expect our actors to stay in the same role for 20, 30 years. You know, um, very few, I, I mentioned once before on one of our Bond shows, you know, uh, Charlie Chaplin as, a, as an actor doing the role of the little tramp was able to do that role for more than 20 years but plugging that character into different situations. He was also in creative control. So a li little bit different thing there, even when you fast forward a bit and you get to like the Thin Man series. Okay, right. there's only a handful of Thin Man movies. We didn't expect them to pick it up again 20 years later and come back and do that character or do those characters, Nick and Nora. So we're, we're on very kind of new ground here with the idea that this production is just getting bigger and bigger and will go on in perpetuity. But you've got an actor here who is faced with this totally new problem of, well, I'm the biggest star in movies there is right now. I've made five of the, uh, four of them back to back. Do I really want to continue after a fifth? I don't blame him. <laughs> You know, no, I don't at all. I, and it brings to mind uh, this day. I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, Hugh Jackman, he's mm -hmm. been playing Wolverine. This will be his 16th year in the role and it'll be his last film coming out next year called Logan. Yeah. 
fantastic for him to have had that longevity and he he has appreciated every moment i think that's one of the things i've always appreciated about him as an actor understanding the blessing that he's been given that people want to keep coming back and seeing you and i I think you know a part of me feels like sean understood that but -hmm. i think he also understood just where he was in life and so i don't i'm not upset that he wouldn't be back if i'm in that time period and uh honestly I, I wish he had never come back because <laughs> I, I think he just doesn't do himself a favor in coming back. But that's a, a whole nother conversation yep. for yep. a couple of podcasts down the road. <laughs> we'll What's interesting it. is that being right smack dab in the middle of the 60s, we're also in the middle of the space race. And so, you know, Dr. No was one where we're just at the very beginning at that we're right in the middle of it. And so I think that it's very interesting for this movie to come out when it does. And the idea of, you know, supremacy in space is very close to what's happening in that world at that time and how important it is. And so Bond, again, is is doing that thing where it just kind of, it's getting that pinpoint moment and having that perfect story to really capture the imagination of, you know, the the entire world yeah i mean it's kind of funny that you look back at it now and the space race was a a political thing that that it was about supremacy and you you put that kind of in finger quotes supremacy in space and it was really about bragging rights we didn't know how weaponry in space would or could work you know, now in the 21st century, we hadn't had Moonraker yet, so we just didn't know. Right, we didn't know. Yeah, but you know, now in the 21st century, and and for the better part of the end of the 20th century, we realized that the space race is really about you know functional satellites, things like GPS and communications. It's about uh, uh, commercial services that can be operated from space. It's really about that. It's not so much anymore that we're worried about who will build uh, a base on the moon or who will put weapons in space. I mean, that, that is a real thing. You know, there, there can and will be weapons in space. Um, but I think our perception of that in the 60s was something very different from what it is now. And, and it was literally a race who... You know, the the Soviets had already gotten the first satellite in space. They'd already got the first person in space. It was a big deal when we got the first American in space. And by damn, we were going to get the first man on the moon, you know. But it, it just meant something very different. And there was this very real fear that if we didn't do it and we didn't control it, somebody was going to do it before us. And that would just mean the end of the world. And it's so interesting to me that in a lot of ways... Spectre and the whole idea of Spectre in this film is so ahead of its time because that's exactly what we're dealing with more in our time period. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's one of the things that made uh, the movie Spectre so interesting is because it felt more realistic to have this behind the scenes organization controlling all this stuff because it actually is a reality in our world today. But the idea that they would be the ones who would have supremacy in space, and that's what Blofeld is is working towards. That is a very scary thing in that time period. It's not the Russians, and it's not the Americans. It's somebody completely different, and they've got nothing but evil on their minds, you know? 
And and you could get away with it in the 60s because you only had a handful of satellites to deal with. That's you very know, true. Like <laughs> missions. You can't do that now. It's just too much stuff, you know. But but yeah, it, but, it but starts to idea, look like Wally. <laughs> right, right. But 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 to your point, you know, the, the idea that somebody could disrupt governments that are doing this. I mean, we we live in a day and age where now our biggest security concern is computers. Who can get into what computers? And it could be a government, but it could be a lone agency that we're not even aware of, you know? So there is something worrisome about that. Well, and as we're recording this in 2016, this Monday, the internet was interrupted big time with a many different services from uh, Facebook to Twitter to Netflix to all sorts of other things because uh, of a security breach mm-hmm. from a small company that nobody had ever heard of until this week. Yeah. It has a really important job when it comes to what we do in the internet. And yeah, you're right. That's, that is completely scary. So when you think about what this, this film is talking about, it, it's very applicable. And you can kind of, if you put it in those kind of terms, you can understand what the fear then is in this movie. And I still think that that actually really works because that is the thing that we're scared of is, is that thing that we can't control being in control of something they shouldn't be in control of. Yeah. Um, you know, as bad as our government is or Russia is or I I'm OK, more OK with them being in control of something <laughs> than I am a rogue agency, which I have no idea. I have no understanding of, you know, and so I think this makes for a, a very um, again, it's just it's very timely. And I think the writers and the producers of James Bond really understood this, especially in these early films that helped make them feel as fantastical as this movie's going to get and it's going to blow the lid off of fantastical yeah. for spy genre right. right it has a foundation of reality that's very true and i think that's what makes it still kind of work even today in that sense when it when we're talking just about the plot mm-hmm. which Coming to plot, we have a very interesting and and one might say the fantastic Mr. Ryder uh, who comes in because they lose their screenwriter. And so they pull in a good friend of Ian Fleming, Roald Dahl. And he's he's never done a script before. <laughs> and he comes in and writes this plot. And this is, I, I just, I, this is his quote. He says, Ian Fleming's worst book with no plot in it, which would ever make a movie. He compared it to a travel log, stating that he had to create a new plot. Uh, and he could only retain four or five of the original story ideas. And so basically, in creating the plot, he didn't know what the hell Bond was going to do. Uh, but he decided to go uh, with basically the basic plot of Dr. No and the girl formula, which he called it, which I think that's funny. Dr. No plot, girls girl done. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, um, you know, Ian Fleming wrote some great stories and he wrote some other stories. <laughs> And um, it's funny that, you know, he. And if you've read Live and Let Die, you know exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think that 
you know, Fleming wasn't afraid of doing a travelogue. Um, there's short stories like James Bond in New York, which honestly to me is memorable because it's where we get the recipe for uh, scrambled eggs, James Bond, you know? So Fleming just sort of, uh, hey, uh, paper is cheap, ink is cheap. I will just write up uh, my own musings about visiting a town and eating eggs. So great, he could do that. Doesn't always make for a great movie script. So um, that was yeah. a that was a really short James Bond film. That was the <laughs> animated short film, right? That right. they did, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes, eighty seconds long, and then you're done. Um, no, but I mean, I, you know, I've never felt that a movie necessarily owed anything to a book. That a movie needs to stand on its own. It needs to be its own thing. So if the best script writer for this is going to be Roald Dahl, who we know from, you know, the Willy Wonka stories. <laughs> cool. Great. Get him to do it. And then what he cooks up definitely feels like Bond. You know, he, he figured out the formula if that is indeed what he was working from. Well, and I think it's interesting and uh, to comment back on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is a m movie that is pretty much the book. Mm -hmm. And that is because it is probably the pinnacle of Bond books. It's it's a great story. It's a wonderful story. And they didn't really have to change all that. In fact, I, I don't really think they change all that much at all, uh, right. if I remember correctly, because that's I've, I've read that one and really enjoyed it. And it was surprised that it was pretty much beat by beat, the movie, uh, and that they hadn't had to deviate. Whereas, yeah, this one, like many of the James Bond movies, if you read the book and then you read the movie, they're very different properties. Uh, mm -hmm. They kind of just will take the name and then, you know, slap that name on a story that they have created because you run into this problem. And I, you know, for not being a, a screenwriter, I feel like that he did create a movie that did all it needed to do, which it felt bondish. Yeah. And it fit within the formula. And I think that this movie, in some ways, is smart to go outlandish. Because it makes it feel different than Dr. No, even though when you think about it, it pretty much is the exact same villain plot. Right. Right. Yeah. But, you know, but, but again, they knew what worked. So and what most audiences want out of their sequels is they want the same but different. So if we're already anticipating who Bond is and what he does and what his relationships are like and what the bad guy is like that he needs to battle, then we're getting the same, but different. So they, they probably gambled maybe a little too closely to that on this side, but they dressed it up with, um, with a different locale, a different style, and it, it, it works in some weird way <laughs> because of that. I think that you're right because it, it really does work. And what made it really interesting was everything that happened with the filming of this movie because there was a lot of stuff that it just, it, it had a troubled, I mean, it, it Watching the extras, they say that this movie was, to that time period, was one of the most troubled productions they had. They had so many things happening, and one of them was when they went on their first scouting mission to Japan. They're scheduled to leave, 
on a certain flight and they cancel that because they're going to be able to see a ninja demonstration, which is very strange because I, I don't know how you watch a ninja demonstration since they vanish. Uh, <laughs> but um, the flight that they were supposed to be on crashed 40 minutes into the flight and killed everybody on board. Wow. And so wow. Saltzman, Broccoli, the director, produce, I mean, all of them mm -hmm. would have been gone. Yeah. I mean, talk about crazy providence <laughs> yeah. to, to not be on that flight. I mean, James Bond could have been over before it really became the phenomenon just yeah, because of that. It would have changed the course of history for, uh, at least for this whole franchise and in a, you know, not too dramatic way, you know, or a not undramatic way. So, yeah, it, it's shocking to think of that when i think it's interesting too because you know you have the great scenes with little nelly and um I, I think that as fun as they are they also feel a little bit like the underwater where we're so excited about what we can do the scene is probably a little long <laughs> but <laughs> make sure you see it and make sure you enjoy it yeah it is a fantastic sequence, uh, and you know you have somebody who's in a real gyrocopter there being flown by uh, RAF Wing Commander Ken Allis, and they're filming those scenes, and during one of those scenes, the, the great aerial photographer, John Jordan, almost loses his leg because he's hit by a rotor mm. and ends up having to have the leg taken off because it just um it it won't heal right and he's in a lot of pain and he he actually recovers after that very well but i mean just a huge huge blow uh and in fact they don't even film the rest of those scenes till much later on uh when they're really forced to and in fact they don't film them in the same place they actually just choose a location in spain that kind of fits the look and the feel but half of that scene is not shot in location over in japan because after what happened they were not going to let them film there anymore so yeah. they had to film the rest in spain yeah and you know the, the stuff that is the the practical effects really works well of course you you get some uh unfortunate composite shots where you have close-ups on connery but we just have to chalk that up to the technology of the day so what the things that are really happening are really exciting um it, it's cool to see all those gags work it's cool to see little nelly actually fly and and when they're doing the scene where they're building it and he's like tanaka's like i James, let me let me let me let you have one of my helicopters. See, this this is this is not a good idea. And I mean, the audience at that time period is probably thinking the same thing. James Bond's going to go up in this. This is crazy. Not a good idea. And you know what? And it's a weird little sequence where they're building little. Yes, that, that's not a thing you see very often. Um, you know, montages in film are usually done with just sort of slow dissolves from one shot to another. You see people moving in and out of frame, but to see this thing sort of go together in a weird like freeze frame way, it's a really odd thing. I can't think of any other movies off the top of my head that do that. There's probably some, but it it feels like it's pulled from a different movie to go into this. You know, the Bond movies aren't things that are shot uh, with a, a really 
kind of out there style. Now you, you get to the later movies, you, you get to like, um, you know, you get to Skyfall uh, and you, that's a movie where there's a lot of artistry in every shot, but it's also a kind of artistry that really establishes mood that plays a lot with color. But this is just sort of like a weird thing, almost like a budget saving thing, <laughs> you know? Uh, don't worry about it. We don't actually have to show them building it. We'll just uh, throw the pieces together. We get a still at each, you know, each step of the way, and then the audience will buy it. It'll go. And what it's so interesting is how the fact that it kind of works because it lets you know as the audience that this is something that is real. It has a reality to it. So you're seeing, you know, those stills basically of them building it and putting all the different pieces together. It's almost as like you're turning the page with Legos, you know, and watching the pieces come together. And that's what's happening. And I think that's really fascinating. And it gives you that sense that, okay, this is something that actually exists. It's not just a screen gag. And we're going to put a man in that and they're going to fly it and it's going to be James Bond. It's going to be cool. And mm -hmm. I think that's a really neat thing. Like you said, the, the practical elements of James Bond are one of the things that really do make James Bond stand out from a lot of other film franchises because that was their hallmark. We do this for real. You know, we do this S for real. Uh, we don't, you know, CGI it until, you know, we have him on a... <sighs> die another day. Anyway, um, <laughs> so... I thought this was fascinating because, you know, uh, James Bond wasn't known for its, um, how shall we put this, tact, I guess, when mm. getting people to play certain nationalities. Obviously, Dr. No, not, not, really, sure. not really good there. But this film, because they're filming so heavily in Japan, Japan is very keen to have them. The Japanese are very keen to have them have actresses that are actually Japanese. Yeah. And this is the hardest thing for them to do because th there are very few actresses in Japan at the time that would actually be of the caliber that they would need. And two, none of them speak English. So yeah. I thought this was fascinating. They choose the, the two best that they can find and they actually send them to England to teach them English. And one of them... It's it's not really working all that well. She's not picking it up. They go to, to basically fire her, and she says she's going to commit suicide. Oh, and no. so Cubby Broccoli says, you know what? She's not so bad after <laughs> all. So she stays in the film, and they switch her role. So she is not playing Aki anymore, mm -hmm. and uh, she has the smaller role and allows her to stay in the film. But I just thought, I like that they stayed committed to having those actresses be Japanese and not doing that thing, which, you know, sometimes even happens today where we choose an actress or an actor that is Asian, but not the right nationality. And there's a big difference. Right. Yeah, no, uh, it, it works in this. I mean, I, I have to say that, and we'll, we'll talk about them more specifically later, but I, I really like Aki. Um, and I like the relationship with Bond. I, I like how they're, I, I like how it changes over time, <laughs> you know, through the movie. It, it was, uh, for a movie that I think has, uh, 
maybe a challenging perspective on Japan. I think this is where this is all leading. You know, at the end of this podcast would be sort of our thesis on how this movie approaches Japan. And there are many downsides to the way it does that, but there are many good choices it makes with that. And I think one of the good choices they made was picking the right actresses for this movie and, uh, and making sure that there's a level of authenticity there. No, I, I, I agree. And I think it does make it feel more realistic like that they are in japan uh, and mm-hmm. i like that they the the women they have the you know not the perfect english and mm-hmm. because that makes sense especially japan at that time period you know um it, it, it's it's just not the same as it is now where i know a lot of japanese people speak english you know yeah. as a second language because it's it's the business language and so yeah i think i think it really works but just the fact of having to go through that trying to get them to actually learn english uh, it's it speaks well for them and that's is another thing while filming because of the heat and because of the long days and because of uh, they were just having a a hard time with the crowds the producers uh, saltzman and broccoli are said to have treated the crew and the cast extremely well and to given them everything that they needed and more. Uh, you know, he, the director even said, you know, I, I feel as though uh, Lewis Gilbert said, if I wanted a hundred people from Tokyo down here today, they would be here. You mm-hmm. know, so I, I think it's really uh, one of those things where good producers understand how to treat their cast and crew to give them the best product. And I think that kind of shows in the film because you don't feel any of the stuff that happened in this movie. Yeah. In fact, you don't feel it in any of the James Bond movies when we were talking about uh, From Russia With Love. You right. don't feel the problems that they had on that movie whatsoever. So right. I think it's a real testament to the James Bond movies and uh, the creators of the James Bond series that they do a good job of of treating everybody behind the scenes and in front of the camera very well so that I think that comes across even if it's a tumultuous shoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Which leads us to a fantastic discussion, I think, on Blofeld and yes. the women. And um, we almost had a completely different Blofeld. Yeah. And I'm not sure, um, as Lewis Gilbert, the director, said that he resembled a poor, benevolent Santa Claus. Yeah, so he may have had a Blofeld that looks like Santa Claus. And honestly, I don't know how that would look if he had a giant scar down his eye and down his cheek. Um, It might frighten children for years to come if they think about Santa Claus like that. I think once again, they made the right casting choice by putting Donald Pleasance in there. Yeah, it has, you know, the the voice, the look, they all go together. You know, I, and I think they did too. Now, I, I won't say that I like him as Blofeld the best. Because Fair enough. Fair uh, enough. when I watch him as Blofeld here, he doesn't feel like Blofeld from the other films, where all you're seeing is the cat, the person with that kind of almost monotone voice, the, the presence that that voice and just the small look that you get, Donald Pleasance doesn't bring that to me. He kind of comes off as almost like a crazed, uh, maniacal, strange, 
I, I don't know. Was just he feels like a very strange man. Whereas the person that I get in, you know, the, just the voice, just the hands and the cat, there's something about that that creeps you out. But when I see Donald Pleasance and get his performance, there's nothing about it that creeps me out or makes me feel like it's really the same character. The the problem with this Blofeld is that he is so iconic. He's so recognizable. He has such a weird, creepy look that that became the Blofeld that every other Bond parody villain, you know, uh, Dr. Evil. He, yes. he is Dr. Evil, you know. Um, I mean, he's even got, you know, the freaking piranhas. They just don't have freaking laser beams freaking on them. <laughs> yeah. so, but, but that's the problem it, it, is that he's so recognizable. He's so iconic and he's weird. He's definitely weird that you can't help but associate that performance with everything that's come after it. So if you go through the other actors, I mean, Max von Sydow, if you go to uh, Christoph Waltz, Christoph Waltz, he, he has cornered the market on playing creepily understated, dangerous characters. So of course he's Blofeld, you know, um, even uh, Telly Savalas, you know, when we, mm-hmm. we get to OHMSS, there's something that's grounded about Telly Savalas, yep. whereas this character is so over the top, but still, I mean, to me, just creepy and weird. The problem is the standard that that set. It's not that I think Donald Pleasance did a bad job at that. I think that it, it's just so outstanding because of its creepy weirdness that you can't help but just say, oh, that is the definitive Bond villain. That That is sort of the cartoonish and broad strokes Bond villain. That that hurts this movie in retrospect. No, I think you're exactly right. And I think it's one of the things that um, the Savalas Blofeld has above this one because he feels, that one feels dangerous. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and in control, this one feels like a a weird loose cannon and 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 not that that's bad for a bond villain because i think that makes for a good bond villain in some places but you know he's supposed to be the leader of a criminal organization beyond all others mm-hmm. he just doesn't feel like the man to be that with that performance to Get me Get bond now <laughs> yeah uh so you know it's it and, and you're right i think because we live in the time where we have seen a thousand Bond parodies, mm-hmm. when you do go back to watch this movie, it you can't help but have it almost ruined that he feels cartoonish by comparison. Yeah. Especially to even the other villains to which we've seen in James Bond, who none of them are, are cartoony. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Goldfinger is really just a high-class thief. And, uh, you know, um, Largo felt like a, a mob boss, basically, mm-hmm. uh, with an awesome boat, uh, you yeah. know. So, I mean, all of these people felt quite more realistic. I mean, and it, I guess the most cartoony was probably Dr. No. And yet sure. there's such an yeah. understatedness the way in which he's played that I think it makes it feel more believable. So, yeah, it's it's really interesting just not my favorite Blofeld. Um, 
So mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, we enough. have some <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> I, I do think we have some fantastic Bond women in in the movie. Um, some some wonderful as we talked about the Japanese actresses that they choose, and I, I really do. I like both of them. Mm-hmm. I think Aki and Kissy, both of them, are really in control characters. Aki, you know, being the fact that she is a part of the Japanese Secret Service, really fantastic. Very in control character. Uh, the way that she kind of treats Bond at the beginning, almost kind of throwing him off, whatever, you, you know. Uh, I thought was great, you know, yeah. that she she doesn't have any kind of respect for him, you know, She's a Secret Service agent too, and this is part of her job. You know, and I I really liked that. Yeah, yeah. There's an actual arc to her character, and then her death has impact. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, and that's something that when Bond gets it wrong, they just sort of have a death of a character, a female character, just because it's sort of supposed to happen to push the plot. But in this case, she is you know, she's in danger because of the job she's in and she's good at her job. And she's not just sort of immediately submissive to bond. You know, she's, she is her own person. She is her own character. I really like her. And and I like, like I said earlier, that there are layers to her relationship with bond, that it's actually something that grows over time as opposed to just they meet, she throws herself at him and then she's dead, you know, by the time you get to know her. She's not that at all. So I, yeah, I, I think of the two, you know, between Aki and Kissy Suzuki, um, I, uh, I I do like Aki, and I, and I like her car quite oh, a yeah. lot. That is a cool, <laughs> cool car. Uh, no, I'm I'm right there with you. I really like that car. Um, yeah. What I I also like, you know, the fact that Kissy Suzuki is Tanaka's own protege mm-hmm. as an agent. Uh, so that makes her somebody that he can trust and somebody who obviously, again, just like Aki, very good at her job. So what I like is that these women are very competent in what they do and they are seen as equals to these men. Now, whether or not sometimes the dialogue treats them as equals is a completely right. different story. But where they are on the level, I mean, both of these women are on the level of, say, a James Bond. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's their job, so I, I really I like what they're doing in that side. The dialogue sometimes for them undercuts that, and that's a little bit unfortunate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then uh, Karen Dor as uh, number eleven. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know she's great. She's gorgeous and she's dangerous, and and you know that's what we want out of our specter villainess and just you know the the flaming red hair she she's absolutely kind of that prototypical bond villain so i i love seeing her in there well and what i love about her is that she plays the female character that pretends to fall for bond's mm-hmm. advances and yep. wants to turn and then she uses that to try and kill him just in a plane flat crash. out gonna kill him. And yeah. it's fantastic. I mean, because you feel like, oh, they're just going back to kind of a pussy galore thing. And then, you know, she jumps mm-hmm. out of the plane uh, yeah. and uh, leaves him for dead. And and that's, in some ways, they have learned. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, what they didn't learn is that, uh, you know, Blofeld is far better at killing his own people than the people who are against him. Uh, he dispatches Osato, but he dispatches, he dispatches uh, number 11 uh, pretty quickly, pretty easily. She meets a very unfortunate end. And, um, you know, I get it in the script that they're trying to fake us out with uh, Blofeld pulling the gun on Osato and then just sort of saving Bond a little bit until he can get into his uh, uh, single-person monorail car. That's a little strange, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I guess if you're a bad guy and you have to get killed by another bad guy and getting eaten by Piranha uh, is, is okay. So she had an iconic death. Yes, yes, she did. Yeah. Um, no laser beams were no. used, uh, and no piranhas were harmed in the making of this film. Right. Just want right. everybody to know that. That's very important. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I do. I, I enjoy the Bond women in this film for the most part, and I, I think it's it's well done. I, I wish that, and this is where, you know, talking about Japan, itself i think they do such a magnificent job and a few things in this but then on the other side they do some things that just i think i don't know how true to life it is uh so i can't comment but the things they do well one they make japan look amazing mm -hmm. uh John, and james bond movies are known for that they, they are so well known for taking a place and making it feel exotic whether it is or not yeah. Japan just happens to look beautiful, the film. And then, two, it leads to, because Japan doesn't have the castles that Fleming writes about, they come up with this audacious plan to have Blofeld's lair be in a, a hollowed-out volcano because Japan has this uh, volcano region. And I th it leads to one of Ken Adams, I mean, one of the most iconic incredibly made real sets you've yeah. ever seen that has a working monorail. It has a roof that retracts. It has helicopters that can fly in and out of it. This set cost as much as Dr. No itself. <laughs> it is a shockingly beautiful set. It, it is so cool. And that was one of the great things about rewatching this for this podcast is so seeing it in HD and then kind of freeze framing through whether it's a shot in the control room, the, the wood veneer on the control panels. Um, I, I took a special delight in hearing the, the PA announcers throughout the, the volcano lair announcing everything that was happening. Right. <laughs> something so strange and wonderful about it that I love. Um, the scale of it is incredible. The effects that are done on top of that set are incredible. It is, um, it, it's so immersive and, and you do sit there and wonder like, well, there's no way that, that a, a secret organization could build something this magnificent, stick it into a volcano. Well, you don't have to believe that. What you need to believe is that a movie company actually built that set. Yep. <laughs> you know? Sure, they weren't actually capturing, you know, spacecraft, but everything else worked. It, it was magnificent. Um, and that holds up today just beautifully. You know, the other stuff about Japan that you're saying, so th there's two sides to this. You know, Japan in popular culture is sort of a shorthand to represent deep 
rich and beautiful culture. And we see that with like the use of Himeji Castle and some of the, the, the grounds that we see. And then this incredibly advanced future. And we see that with the shots of Tokyo, just neon lights everywhere. And it looked like that then, and it looks like that now. Tiger Tanaka, we didn't get to talk too much about Tiger, but I think he is a super cool character. And when you go into his office, when Bond slips into his underground office, that is the coolest office any Nothing like the spy slide. It's what? Nothing like the spy slide. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you're going to get anywhere travel by spy slide if you can. Um, so Japan is a great stand-in for that. There's also this weird thing about the time this movie was made. Okay, made in 1966 and you have to think that you know 20 years before was when world war ii was ending but you had also a lot of allied troops who were still there for years after during the kind of reconstruction of that that japan needed after being devastated during the war so japan is still this sort of exotic and in some ways, you know, mysterious, also kind of a hands-off place to a lot of people. They were our enemies, you know, shortly more than 20 years before this movie came out. So there's a bit of baggage for an audience to unpack uh, of, of seeing the, this place and depicted the way it's depicted. The other thing that I think is, you know, what, what we're sort of dancing around with this and when it deals with the women in the movie, you know, there's this scene where Bond goes to Tiger's house. And honestly, the dialogue might as well be Tiger Tanaka saying, the women here are objects for your use. <laughs> you know, it's really disturbing. It's really uncomfortable to, to see that. And, and I, you try to be a good critic and you put it into a certain kind of cultural context, which is it's the 1960s. And pop culture in the 1960s and the general culture in the 1960s treated women differently than they are treated or should be treated now. I think we all understand that. But there's also this other thing about it's Ian Fleming, this war hero writing from the comfort of his home in Goldeneye or possibly London, but writing about a kind of Japan that is this exotic place where the rules about men and women are very different from what we accept in Western society. And it's sort of playing into this desire of the exotic that if it's, if it's something that the men can't get themselves by going to Japan, well, he's sort of playing right into that audience that thinks like, hey, you know, the, the tiki bar in my neighborhood is a representation of exotic culture, <laughs> you know, the, this far off place that I can't actually go to in real life, but I can pretend that I'm partaking in this exotic, weird culture, this exotic, weird place that I can't actually put my fingers on, but I know it's out there somewhere. So it's playing into this whole fantasy world, this whole fantasy that, you know, white men are creating to tell themselves about what the rest of the world is like. And like I said, I, I think that in the 21st century here, we, we've got to be careful about putting this into the right context. It's easy to condemn the way women are treated in this movie, even though, 
you make a good case for the fact that they are capable, that, that they do things that are equal to Bond. You know, Aki is an agent. She is trained to be a badass in the field. Unfortunately, the context around that is this thing that today we can and should see as a little unsavory. It's not the way we want the world to operate today. So if we look at that and we accept it and we go, okay, this is a book written at a different time, a movie that was produced at a different time. These were kind of the cultural attitudes around it. It's almost as if, you know, the 20th century is catching up to the Western world, but there's going to be this last gasp of the Western world to say, oh, well, look at the way they still treat women in Japan. Wouldn't it be great to go there for a little while? And that's kind of what Tiger is saying to Bond. That's where it feels a little creepy to me. I I agree because, uh, you know, I, this film does have that uncomfortable feeling in a few places mm -hmm. because of, of that. And I think that's okay for us to feel. And I think the way that you put it of, you know, understanding historically and contextually, because context is king, context yeah. is everything. You know, without that context you can't understand why and how we've moved to where we have moved because of the reasons that we would find this to be unsavory or let's just call it wrong behavior yeah. towards women. It's just not right to treat women like this. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't mean you can't enjoy the movie. It doesn't mean that there aren't great things about this movie. It's just that that's sort of the elephant in the room. You watch this movie, and, and I think we made a good case previously why a character like Pussy Galore is a strong character, and, and why, yes, you, you could look at her and say, well, you know, she's the one who's just sort of turned by Bond, so she doesn't have her own agency. Well, I think there's another argument to be made that that character is a strong character, and there are other Bond women who are strong characters, or I think who are, are given short shrift. And it's not to say that Kissy and Aki aren't strong characters, but they're presented in a context that is sort of, you know, they're there for the men. Because that's, that's what Tiger says. And that's the thing that's uncomfortable to watch in this. So we, we just have to, like, accept it and go, okay, that was the culture. That was the way this was written. That's what came out in 1967. That's not going to fly in 2017. Well, and, and one of the things about it, uh, I think, that I'm seeing, and I, w I, I saw watching the film, again, I hadn't seen this one in a while, I was actually surprised, you know, watching them in progression, mm -hmm. there is so much sexual innuendo in this movie compared to the other Bond movies. I think we think of that as being there all the time, but really it's not. Uh, mm -hmm. There are some very tasteful and funny innuendos throughout the earlier Bond films, but this one is saturated with them, whether it's about little Nelly or any of the other women in the film. It's, it, it's just so there. Well, I, I think it's a couple of things going on. You know, I, I think it is a, that the 1966 is different from 1961. It's very 62. true. <laughs> I, I think it's also that it, again, they're given this freedom. Well, the Bond movies know that they can push that envelope and they will continue to do so. 
but I think it's also part of the the cultural context. It, it's like, well, we're going to set this someplace so foreign to everybody else who's watching this movie that we can kind of get away with tweaking that and making it a little more sexualized and and throw in the innuendo that we want. You know, again, because we're 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 painting this picture of saying that Asia just in general, and, and in this case, Japan in particular, but Asia in general, it's this exotic place where you can just sort of get away with stuff. Well, and, and I think you make a great point as well, just when you think about the time period which this movie is made, the revolution of sex is happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think what we are also experiencing is that change in the culture at large. that this kind of more loose behavior and more loose talk is becoming a little bit more acceptable than it used to be. Obviously, in the very early 60s, you know, still not as much a thing. Uh, And and, and unless it's what we, and I put it in air quotes, high (laughs) society in certain areas like Midtown New York kind of thing. Uh, the Mad Men class, basically. Mm-hmm. That's the only kind of place you really kind of see this. Uh, otherwise, middle America, not at all. Yeah. But by this point, the world is changing. And so uh, Bond is changing with it in that way. And it's reaping, that sounds weird, but it is reaping the benefits of the fact that the world is becoming more sexually loose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and the character is reflecting that and, and the dialogue is reflecting that. It was just something that I, I noticed because watching them in order this way, I, it, it stood out to me. I was a little bit shocked yeah, right. that it was so prevalent where as before it had been a funny quip and then you moved on, but this had many of those and it was like it wasn't as enjoyable actually it, I, you know like I didn't find it as funny or cute or any of those things it was just kind of like ah, that was that was juvenile yeah right <laughs> you know right, yeah. like uh, so especially when he was talking about little Nelly like that it just yeah. it, that was the other thing that made me uncomfortable it wasn't just the way they were treating the women but it was the way that they were implying that women should be treated by talking about their equipment like that like yeah and 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 the name it just makes it feel like (laughs) well it's it's diminutive i mean it yes 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 yeah yeah. and and that's so uh, there's all of that going on here but then the the other thing that i think really has to be dealt with in this movie is is that okay let's take the phrase that i think has become so unfortunately uh turned into like a lightning rod now and that's cultural appropriation you know, um, I, I think that when that phrase is used incorrectly, I think people are complaining about incorporating the best of what has come before into other works of art. You know, it, it's not patently wrong for somebody to be influenced by uh, a, a piece of art or music or literature from another culture and then sort of use the filter of their own background and their own own culture to create their own art or their, their own music, their own literature that, that has pieces of that. I think that's what makes art great and fluid and, um, and a reflection of who we are. Now, the bad side of cultural appropriation is where you sort of take the idea, like, like this movie, you just take Japan 
and to say, okay, we can figure out Japan. We, we can sort of put it in a box. We, we can commodify it. And, um, and in fact, we're just going to take our lead character and make him Japanese. Now, say, say what you will about the makeup job that they do here. To me, this is kind of setting the, the very low bar for any time a spy movie or, uh, gosh, on, on Mission Log when we were talking about unification and you've got um, uh, Data and Picard in Romulan makeup which is actually more effective because at least the Romulans have a prosthetic <laughs> that sort of goes a long way. Um, but I sort of look back on what are the, the poor examples of, of doing something like that. And this is one of the poor examples of doing that. It, there's something, there's a dual thing going on in this movie where it is both amazed and celebratory about Japanese culture. It's sort of, you know, a tourist being in awe of what is fascinating about Japanese culture. But there's the flip side to that that is sort of like the ugly American tourist who thinks they've kind of got it figured out and it's like, oh, okay, well, all I have to do is study to be a ninja and take a Japanese wife and uh, I'm done. I've, I've got it figured out, I can pass. Um, yeah, that, that's sort of the, the underlying thing here that is competing with the beauty of the Japan that is presented in this movie. And again, I think it's just part of the, the time that it was made, who made it, <laughs> you know, and we can't escape that. Um, again, I, I'm going to say for those who may not believe me, it does not take away from my enjoyment of the movie, but I think it has to be addressed. It has to be dealt with to say that there's a, a weird very quote-unquote western attitude that this movie has this movie can't help but have because of the time it was made because of the people who made it well and i i do think that that's interesting because it all flows into it and there's a scene between the american government the british government and the russian government where they're talking about who's doing what with satellites and there is this um, British superiority that comes across. Well, both of you are children. Absolutely. And that comes across in every other part of the film as well, especially <laughs> when we, I think we are dealing with what we're doing in Japan. And like you said, uh, Tanaka almost bragging about, uh, it's like saying, don't you wish your girlfriend was hot like me? You know, don't you wish you lived in Japan like me? Uh, right. that's kind of what he's saying because look how much better we have it and look how our women treat us that, you know, none of your English girls would do this, you know? Yeah. Um, it, yeah, you can just become Japanese by putting a wig on and we'll, you know, right. We won't even shave your chest, uh, <laughs> but that's fine. So yeah, it's just, those things are downsides to the movie. But I think as you said, taking all of that into account, I don't think it, it hurts the enjoyment that, does come from the movie because there's a lot of other fun and wonderful parts and scenes and mm -hmm. the product as a whole beyond that can transcend that. Now, I think when we come to the idea of ratings, how does that affect for you, John? And, and where would you end up rating, do you think, You Only Live Twice? 
Yeah, well, you know, that that is the the complicating factor. You know, you, you can't help but watch a movie through the lens of somebody in 2016 watching a movie that was made in 1966. That there's a 50-year gap there that accounts for a lot of cultural and social and political change. So you have to be aware of those things. You, you have to take the things that make you feel uncomfortable in this movie and sort of process them and, you know, just realize that that same movie wouldn't be made today. Now, the things in this movie that work, work great. The set pieces, the action. I think this is a better built story than Thunderball in many ways. This is a better paced and a better edited movie than Thunderball, certainly. But the downsides are, are kind of big downsides. I think we lose momentum when we try to make Bond Japanese. I think this is a big, big mistake. And actually, I thought about it and I thought, you know, maybe one of the ways to fix that was I love the opening. I love that we kill Bond in the opening. And I love the whole thing with you know, they have a burial at sea and then he gets rescued. That's fun to watch, right? But I think killing Bond might have been more effective before we decided to make him Japanese. You know, so if we were going to try to do that and just say, well, we have to sneak you onto this island. So then you stage a death and then you just say, okay, well, we just have to hide you enough to get you there. We're not going to go through the pretense of trying to pretend like we're making you into something that you're not. We just have to make you dead. So you actually do that in the middle of the movie to then justify getting him to the island. So the, those are things in this movie as is that I think kind of slow it down that, that are hard to justify in there. So if I had to give it a rating, man, I mean, I really enjoy it. I really do. But there are things that are hard to get past. I think I'm going to give it three out of five plastic surgeon scalpels. I like it. <laughs> All the things that you said are exactly the same for me. In, in watching this movie, um, there was a sense that when I was watching this one, I became a little, I found myself a little bit distracted uh, in the sense of like uh, doing, just doing other things. And part of that, I think it comes to that. I have seen this plot before in a James Bond movie. And, but like you said, it is better paced. And I think in the end, it amounts to a better story for the most part than Thunderball. But what's funny is that the things that we talked about where it fails hurt it like it Thunderball was hurt because of the story issues mm. and the pacing in that film and all that. So it, it, I think that for me, I'm right there with you. This is about three, three and a half out of five Sockies because yeah. um, it can't completely overcome the issues to which it creates in the way and it tells its story in the same way that Thunderball had that same issue. They just have different issues in in the way that that plays out story-wise and pacing-wise and everything. They fix the pacing in this much better. Uh, they fix the flow of the story much better. Uh, but they then added some things into this story to which, you know, whereas in Thunderball, I'm not uncomfortable. Uh, I, I am here. Yeah. You know, so it's just, uh, it's too bad. But... It's still a very fun 
Bond movie in a lot of ways. It has some great action sequences, and it has, I think, probably Ken Adams' greatest set ever Uh. with, I mean, legitimately, there are over a hundred stuntmen in that place at one time in those final scenes doing stuff. Uh, They actually also, we didn't even mention this, but this is the first movie there they really use uh, trampolines for stunts. Oh, yeah. To yeah. really get the men yeah. flying all over the place right. and stuff. So just some great, great stuff going on here. And, and cool. again, pushing forward the filmmaking for James Bond in a lot of ways. So for some of that stuff. So, yeah, I, I think all that, yeah, mm-hmm. three, three and a half out of five. I love this has been just such a fun series. And I'm so excited that that we have one more for everybody coming in December uh, John will be talking about on Her Majesty's Secret Service, uh, a, a good one to talk about in December since uh, sure, yeah. it is a yeah. Christmas Bond film. And yeah. so, you know no Christmas, Christmas Jones, yeah. but uh, yes, anyway, uh, no more Christmas jokes. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> got to slow down. I'm really excited to to do that with you, but I want to want to thank the associate producers here, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Norman Lau. Thank you so much, guys, uh, for supporting us through Patreon. And helping make sure that this comes to you, this program and every other program here on Trek FM. If you'd like to be part of the team the way they are, go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can help us. There's just no way that we can do this alone, and we definitely need your help. So again, go to patreon.com slash trekfm. John, I'm so excited uh, to be continuing this series. It's been such a blast so far. I I love sitting down and and talking these movies with you. Where can everybody find you online if they'd like to talk uh, some more James Bond with you? Or just, I mean, I know that obviously with you doing Mission Log, so let everybody know where they can find you and about the podcast. Sure, yeah. Uh, So my personal Twitter account is at DVDGeeks. Uh, so you can find me there. More apt to talk about Bond there. Otherwise, you would find me on missionlogpodcast.com. That'll lead you to our Twitter and Facebook pages from there. Uh, so weekly, I'm talking about Star Trek at Mission Log. But yeah, I, you know, I got to tell you, Matthew, it is so great to be able to kind of break that cycle and and talk about Bond and really do it. And what I hope is a kind of a thoughtful and, and studious way. You know, th- there's been so much written and discussed about these movies so I really find it uh, a privilege to be able to share some of my thoughts about these. And, and it really challenges me to be able to go back and, and look at them with a fresh view. I And I'm so glad, too, because, and again, I said this earlier, you know, watching this film in the order that we have been doing, I think is really fantastic for me to sit down and do that because it's not something that I have done a lot of in the same way that uh, last year when we were talking through all of the Star Wars films to watch each of them in sequential order, which I've done before, but to actually talk about them then is kind of get out all the things that kind of come up as you do. And and it's just been a blast. So, uh, of course, you can find me on Twitter, MattRushing02. You can also find me here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones. We're going to talk about Deep Space Nine. Also doing literary tricks with Bruce and Dan about the books and the comics of Star Trek, which is a lot of fun. Interviewing the authors, too, which is a blast, so I hope you will check that out. You can also find me on Aggressive Negotiations with my good friend John Mills as we talk about Star Wars. Uh, you, that's over on the nerdparty.com or just search Aggressive Negotiations in iTunes. 
And then a quick reminder too, if you love Star Wars, the 602 Club does have a special feed. It's called Star Wars, a 602 Club collection. And you can find that specifically in iTunes and that just collects every single one of the Star Wars episodes that we put out. It's a its own feed so you can subscribe to that one if those are the episodes that you really love listening to well thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you hear you